I thought that today I would <clears throat> speak about um, Prabhupada's pastimes in this world and how we can compare them to uh, Lord Krishna's pastimes and Lord Chaitanya's pastimes. So I'll begin by um, making a few remarks about Krishna Leela and Chaitanya Leela and how they're actually structurally very similar. <clears throat> I mean, clearly Lord Chaitanya appeared at a very different time in history. Everything was different historically in terms of just how human beings lived. Uh, not literally everything, but dramatically different. And, and yet we find a similar structure. So I'll begin with the Chaitanya Charitamrita and, and Lord Chaitanya and then show the parallel with Krishna and then the parallel with Prabhupada. The Chaitanya Charitamrita, of course, is divided into three sections, which are called leelas or, or pastimes, which are Adi Leela, which just means the first pastimes, and uh, Madhya Leela, the middle pastimes, and Antya Leela, which means the final pastimes. So it's just first, middle, and final. <clears throat> and here's what we find. We find in, in the Adi Leela, the first pastimes, or the beginning pastimes of Lord Chaitanya, <clears throat> that he lives in a... Uh, not a tiny little village, but a small town. He basically associates with people he knows, his own family, and of course, those famous extended families of India, and, uh, and friends. Everyone in the town knows him, he knows everyone, and uh, his pastimes are, how should I put it, uh, so there's that personal relationship. Everyone knows him. He knows everyone. And he's mischievous. When he's young, sometimes he preaches bogus philosophy just to see what everybody's going to do about it. And, of course, <coughs> no one really can do anything about it because he's the smartest guy in the town. <coughs> and, um, and yet when he leaves, uh, another week, he takes sannyas. Lord Chaitanya takes sannyas at the age of 24. He leaves his hometown, and it's very much his hometown. And for six years, he very actively travels and preaches around India, going all the way down to South India, really all around India. And uh, then after six years, that's Madhya Leela, the middle pastimes, Lord Chaitanya is preaching all around India, very actively, personally leading the Sankirtan mission. And then in Antya Leela, he retires to Jagannath Puri and, uh, of course, continues to command and lead his Sankirtan movement, but not personally preaching. He lets his devotees preach, and he stays in Puri. Now let's compare that to Krishna Leela. Although we don't use generally that terminology, Krishna Leela very clearly has Adi Leela, Madhya Leela, Nanti Leela. The Adi Leela of Krishna is obviously Vrindavan. 
and compare that to Lord Chaitanya's Adi Leela. Again, Krishna's in his hometown. He knows everybody. Everybody knows him. Aloha. So Krishna, he knows everybody, everybody knows him, intimate relationships. And uh, just as Lord Chaitanya took sannyas, Krishna is summoned by the evil king Kamsa and goes to Mathura. Now, if we compare the Madhya Leelas of Krishna and Lord Chaitanya, one very important fact is that for both of them, I mean, actually, it's the same person. But in both these pastimes, Krishna performs activities that are the greatest, you could say, geopolitical importance in the Madhya Even though Lord Chaitanya's pastimes in Navadvipa are, you could say, the sweetest pastimes, the most relishable and intimate, uh, basically, he's just working with or dealing with the people in his own little town. And his influence doesn't go beyond that town. In Madhya Lord Chaitanya brings his pastimes all over South Asia, really. And yet, still, the Adi Leela is the most intimate. <clears throat> in the same way, it's when Krishna leaves Vrindavan that he performs activities that are of greatest geopolitical importance you know, red carding demons, eliminating demons, and um, saving devotees, and really changing world history. Changing world history. That's done in Madhya And just as Lord Chaitanya, in his Antya his final pastimes, he, so to speak, hands the baton, as they say, he empowers his devotees to now actively preach. So when Krishna, in, in Krishna's Antilila, Krishna personally, and Balaram, again, same person, Krishna personally stops killing demons and coming to the rescue of devotees and transfers that mandate to his devotees like the Pandavas. Krishna retires you may not notice this, but, um, but it is there in the Bhagavad To really understand this better, if we compare the timelines between the two most important sources we have on these events, which are Bhagavatam, especially 10th Canto, and the Mahabharata. And so if we compare the timelines for these two works, it's, we, we come to some very interesting facts. The Bhagavatam... We'll start with the Bhagavatam. At the end of the 10th canto, Krishna kills the sort of like the crazy aviator, Shalva, who had that airplane, you know, Sova. And, and then Shalva, this typical, the demons, they kind of stick together. So Shalva, I think his brothers, his two brothers or two friends, they come racing onto the battlefield. And of course, they're also killed. Vidurata, and who was the other one? Anyway. But what's interesting is those are the last demons that Krishna personally kills. Those are the last demons that Krishna personally kills. And that's the end of the 10th canto because the Bhagavatam, 
the Bhagavatam's account of Krishna Leela. Of course, in the 11th canto, you hear about the, the end of the Yadu dynasty, which sort of wraps things up. But again, Krishna plays a passive role there. Krishna knows what's going to happen, but doesn't actually participate. So Krishna's active pastimes, as described in the Gita, yada yada dharmasya glanir bhavati bharata, Krishna's active pastimes of paritranaya sadhunam, saving the devotees and killing the demons and restoring dharma, ends at the end of the 10th canto. But the end of the 10th canto, the end of Krishna Leela and the Bhagavatam is still relatively early in the events of the Mahabharata. Now, now I'll give you the evidence for that. When Draupadi and the Pandavas were exiled into the forest, Krishna met with them and Draupadi, who, you know, had a temper, Draupadi said to Krishna that I am so devoted to you when I was being insulted in the Duthi Sabha, the gambling hall of the Kurus, why didn't you come to help me? Hare Krishna. Sisi Gornitai Kita. Oh, I should let people are watching and give them one quick look at the deeds. Oh, oops. <laughs> It's like that temple in South India where they open Jesus for a second and close. I know, I know. So, so, so what we know, and, and so Krishna's answer to Draupadi is, of course I would have come to help you, but just at the time that you were being offended by the Kurus, Shalva attacked Dwarka, and therefore I had to be in Dwarka to defend the Yadu dynasty. That's why I didn't come. Now, in the Mahabharata, the offense to Draupadi, and very soon after that, the banishing of the Pandavas for 12 years into the forest, 13 years, and um, that's fairly early in the Mahabharata story. Because after the Pandavas are, are banished into the forest, they, of course, spent all those years, 13 or 14 years in the forest. So many things happen. And finally, they come back. They form an army with their allies. You have the great battle of Kurukshetra. And so the, the Pandavas, Banavasa, the Pandavas going to the forest is almost, you could say, midway in the Mahabharata story, but it's the end of the 10th canto. And, of course, there's an obvious reason there. And that is that the 10th canto of the Bhagavatam, which was composed after the Mahabharata, when Vyasadeva was not satisfied after composing the Mahabharata, and his guru, Narada Muni, said, well, why don't you try being a little more direct? Why don't you just talk directly about Krishna? So, because people are envious of God, and people, you know, many people may not want to read a book where the hero is God. Therefore, Vyas composed a book, Mahabharata, where the heroes are Krishna's devotees. So it's like, even though Krishna's devotees are not different, but it's still like one step removed. 
So instead of asking people to hear a book or hear a story where it's always about God, okay, let's hear about these really cool princes and what they did. And so it's sort of a way of allowing people that are not so devoted to Krishna to enter into these pastimes without becoming envious or put off. And Vyasa was not satisfied. And that's why after the Mahabharata, he composed the Bhagavatam, which culminates in the, the direct pastimes of Krishna. So in because the Mahabharata is, is, is centering on the Pandavas, therefore continues to narrate so many things, whereas because the Bhagavatam, 10th Canto, is really focused just on Krishna, and because Krishna retired, so to speak, not retired, but stopped personally engaging in world events, you could say, after killing Shalva, therefore the Bhagavatam ends there. So I pointed that out just to show that um, Krishna's, you could call it Antilila, is analogous to Lord Chaitanya's Antilila, where both Krishna and Lord Chaitanya are very much leading the mission. And of course, there were analogous but different missions. 5,000 years ago, the mission was, you could say, primarily military. Because the earth had been invaded by these Asuras, and 500 years ago, or actually uh, 531 years ago, the mission was probably for the next thousand years, we'll say 500 years ago when Lord Chaitanya came. I mean, eventually you got to adjust the number. But when Lord Chaitanya came, the mission was primarily uh, missionary, preaching. But still, we find these pastimes of Adi Lila, intimate hometown boy, and uh, having, in a sense, the most interesting, attractive pastimes, but not so much of international significance. And then you have the Madhya Lila, where Krishna gives up, or Lord Chaitanya gives up, in a sense, the intimacy of living in your hometown with all your friends and family in order to go out and change the world. And then, in Antilila, we find both Krishna and Lord Chaitanya after doing that, uh, they turn it over to their devotees because after all, uh, as Krishna says in the Gita, Jajanacharitishastas, whatever the greatest person does, ordinary people follow. In the Madhya Lila, Krishna gives the example, this is how you do it, this is how you save the planet. And after showing that example in different yugas, he turns it over to his devotees in the Antilila. So now we get to Prabhupada, and the thesis that I'm putting forth here is that there that, that the structure of Prabhupada's life is actually analogous to Krishna Leela and Chaitanya Leela. Um, so actually, I'm going to skip here for the purpose of my analysis. Prabhupada's life before he really, before he revealed himself as the great preacher of our age. There's that famous book by Satsarupa, A Lifetime in Preparation. And of course, Prabhupada once personally told me that he was never a conditioned soul. 
and that he always knew Krishna, Prabhupada privately told me that. But so still, uh, I'm going to look at Prabhupada in his relationship with this kind, in which we are members of. So, and, and the reason I'm doing this analysis, I think it's interesting just on a, for its own sake, but also I think that this analysis of the structure of Prabhupada's activities is really crucial to understanding what our duty is today, what we need to do for Prabhupada. Um, in the first stage of ISKCON, which I would say roughly was from 1966 when Prabhupada incorporated ISKCON, Till around 69, or you could say perhaps a bit of 1970, just like Krishna and Vrindavan or Lord Chaitanya in, uh, in Navadweep, uh, ISKCON really is a type of community. I mean, it's, you know, the international society, and of course that's a, that is a sociological distinction. Community is a smaller, more intimate a uh, group of people who actually know each other, whereas in a society is much larger. And so Prabhupada, of course, called it the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, but there was a sense in which, even when I joined in 1969, it was, it was like, an, like an international community. Uh, Prabhupada knew, certainly all the senior devotees, people started to join more and more, but but when, even when I joined the movement, Prabhupada knew a, a pretty large percentage of the devotees in the world. He knew them, and they knew him personally. And um, if you go back a year before I joined, everyone knew Prabhupada, and Prabhupada knew everyone. So ISKCON was not as big internationally. It wasn't having, you could say, yet a significant global impact, but it was intimate. In a sense, those pastimes of Prabhupada, just like Krishna Leela and Vrindavan is the most interesting, I think there's a sense in which those are the most interesting pastimes of Prabhupada, and I'll explain why shortly. But then the middle pastimes of Prabhupada, of Prabhupada his middle pastimes, he actually goes, he, he really starts to go all over the world, uh, not just New York or Montreal, which is, he went to Montreal just because he lost his visa because his disciples forgot to renew it, so he just went to Canada. And then he, um, he went to California, but he really, he really starts to go all over the world. He goes to London, and, and from there, other places in Europe, and it really starts to become a global movement in Australia. So there's a time in Prabhupada's life when he's not just living in New York or living in San Francisco, but he's actually traveling around the world. And then, of course, uh, because of ill health, Prabhupada, it, there's another point I, I want to make here, which, which I'm going to relate to Prabhupada's audio, let's call it that. And that is, it, it wasn't very long after ISKCON started to grow that Prabhupada started to say, I don't want to do this really. What I really want to do is sit down and write. And so it's interesting to note that not, I mean, Prabhupada was traveling around the world and he did it because he knew he had to do it. But he would frequently say, if I had my choice, this is not what I'd be doing. I would rather that you all did this so that I could just sit down and, and, and do my writing. Prabhupada said this all the time. 
and eventually he did. Of course, eventually his health didn't permit him to travel, and and uh, he did uh, just focus on that. But but the point is relevant for us here. The point is relevant for us here. And if Prabhupada had lived longer, I'm sure he would have had a more extensive Antyalila, uh, where he really did just sit down and stop traveling altogether as his disciples got older <laughs> and more mature, and he would have just allowed his disciples to do everything. Um, what I think is relevant to us, well, many things are, but especially in this context, is that the relationship, the relationship between Prabhupada and his disciples uh, was different in the beginning. And in fact, I may, you know, some people may think that's kind of a radical thesis, but, you know, what do I live for except to disturb other devotees? So, so it's interesting, if we're looking for the golden age of ISKCON, and we're trying to get back or again recreate ISKCON's golden age, on the one hand, um, you could say the golden age of ISKCON is when there was a book distribution explosion and, and we were making lots of devotees uh, and, and you know, giving out so many books and that was the golden age of ISKCON, which is sort of Prabhupada's Manti Lila. I mean, in a sense, that's true. Certainly Prabhupada dedicated his life to saving the world. And so that period of ISKCON, when ISKCON was most successful in, in helping other souls and in trying to bring spiritual influence into this sorry world. I mean, certainly in a sense, that is a golden age. But I think that if we want to be honest, I know self-criticism is, uh, you know, not something we really want to indulge in. But, but if I can, but if, but if we look at Prabhupada's movement, I think in three ways, because we were so young, and it wasn't our fault that we were so young, because it was a new movement, ISKCON was a new movement, and because it was so, um, as a historian, if we look, if, if we look at it historically, um, ISKCON grew at a very unusual time in history. If you look at the decade, and it was really a decade that Prabhupada was active in the West, 1966 to 1976. If you look at that decade, uh, it was extraordinarily anomalous. There was this um, huge, huge cultural wave. If you say fad, it's almost, it was actually more serious than a fad. And that is a, a great interest in Indian mysticism and Indian spirituality. You know, the Beatles, who were arguably the most important figures in the counterculture at that time, they went to Rishikesh and to see Maharishi. And of course, after seeing Maharishi, Paul McCartney wrote a song for him, which he, this is actually a fact, called Fool on the Hill. Uh, and he openly said that, you know, this was about the Maharishi fool on the hill because he came to the conclusion that this person was not bona fide. And of course, it, it, it was exactly in that time 
that that George Harrison really devoted himself to Prabhupada, and you know, at the concert for Bangladesh, which was the first great rock concert for charity, and George Harrison had on you know Hare, a little Krishna button, you know, and said Hare Krishna, and and then My Sweet Lord, and so on. So I remember in '72 and '73 when I was a young sannyasi traveling around to American universities, lecturing and selling books. And they have those activity boards where they have, you know, people used to, now everything's digital, I suppose, but back then people actually used paper and posted things. And when you looked at those boards that had all the campus activities, there was always, there were always several uh, announcements for rock star gurus. I won't mention their names here. But there was a whole number of gurus from India who were really like rock stars. One of them who, anyway, was not particularly um, profound, he filled up the Astrodome in Houston. This is a football stadium. I mean, the idea of an Indian guru filling a football stadium with Western people, this was pre-massive Indian immigration to the West. There were very few Indians in America at the time. So imagine just with Western, young Westerners, young Americans <laughs> filling a football stadium. It's unimaginable nowadays. It's absolutely unimaginable. So these were absolutely different times. And there was a huge wave of uh, utopian movements and, uh, you know, form, you know, communities out of, going back to nature etc etc i guess going back to nature nowadays it means when you just put some flowers on your on your uh, you know your cell phone you put a little picture of a flower on or something but so in that sense in that sense Prabhupada never actually uh saw the western world under normal circumstances and krishna opened this historical window for Prabhupada so that he could establish the Hare Krishna movement. So in those days, being freaky was totally cool. Oh, you're freaky, you're weird, that is so cool. Being freaky was cool, being involved with Indian mysticism was super trendy. And, and another thing which, which had a major impact on the way ISKCON developed. And I, I think that, you know, as adults, we should actually rationally try to understand our own history and why the way we are, why we are the way we are now and how we should be. One of the major social characteristics of that period, the whole period that Prabhupada was in the West was what was called then the generation gap. That's okay. Normal, at least one player's kicked out of the game. Right? <laughs> so the generation gap, basically something happened in America, which unlike the 50s and almost all the decades before that, radically split parents from their children. And what actually several things happened. The first, there was a war in Vietnam. And 
I was in Berkeley at the time. I was on the streets protesting and all that. In fact, my picture was on the front page of the Oakland Tribune in the middle of some wild demonstration. And so um, our parents had, they had come through World War II. They were super patriotic. When I was a little boy, um, we used to sing military songs. Like that's, you know, when children were playing, they would sing military songs. You know, anchors away for the Navy and up we go into the wild blue yonder for the Air Force. Then when the caissons go marching along for the Army. And like on a Sunday, you know, for a Sunday outing with the family, I remember my father took us to a military base and we saw a submarine or we went to an army base and saw tanks. There was this super patriotism because, I mean, Hitler was, was, was bad stuff. It was, so really, people in America had the idea that if we lose the war, we're going to be slaughtered by these fascist tyrants, which is, you know, was not too inaccurate. So it was, it was very serious. It was very serious. There really was a threat to civilization. There really was. And so there was a super patriotism. And then along comes the Vietnam War and all of our parents who are super patriots and everything see their children, you know, uh, cursing the government and, and, you know, it's an evil war and blah, blah. And they, they just couldn't get it. They couldn't understand. They couldn't make that curve. And then another thing happened. I don't know why it happened at that time, sort of like the perfect storm of, uh, degradation, but drugs came on the scene. And of course, our parents would never dream of taking drugs. They would do respectable things like drinking liquor. <laughs> <laughs> Although I should say that I was very fortunate in, in my family, there was no drinking. I mean, we actually, I never saw liquor on our table when I was growing up. So, but still, uh, so the drugs and then drugs kind of got, and then the sex revolution. The sex, you know, which basically meant that uh, it's okay to be an animal. Like, you know, what's so good about human life anyway? Let's be animals. So sex, drugs, not only the Vietnam War, then throw in the civil rights movement. Another curve that most of our parents just couldn't make. It just, you know, they were just brought up differently. And so on, in so many ways, we are different from our parents and we were very self-righteous and immature and they were not philosophical and not open-minded. And so there was a generation gap. So much so that there was a major social problem of, of runaways, of young people, you know, teenagers and young adults just running away from home and their parents had no idea where they were. And a lot of them, of course, came through Berkeley. But I remember that there, there was there was sort of like a radical or counterculture newspaper in Berkeley at the time called the Berkeley Bar. And basically it financed the newspaper, which sort of like the sex, drug, hippie, radical politics newspaper. And I think probably their main income stream was that they had all these classified ads from parents desperately trying to find their children. Because, you know, parents all over the country thought, well, my kid's anywhere, maybe in Berkeley or San Francisco, it's also sold. And so there were page after page. It was actually very, um, there, was, there was real pathos about it. Parents, you know, from Nebraska, from, from Atlanta, from Chicago, from everywhere, 
you know, like these calling out to their children saying that, um, you know, please come home and uh, your room is still there. Everything's forgiven and just desperately trying to find their children. They didn't know if their children were dead or alive. And so it was in this mood that Prabhupada came. And of course, Prabhupada instantly was categorized, really in a sense against his own will and preference, Prabhupada was instantly categorized as part of the counterculture. Which, and there's some, there's some irony in that, because obviously, if you're, if you're an Indian guru and your disciples are dressing up in what was extremely exotic for America back then, I mean, you're definitely the counterculture. There's no way you're mainstream. And there, there's something ironic about that, because if you look at Prabhupada when he's planning to come to the West, and if you look at Prabhupada when he arrived in the West before ISKCON got going, it's very clear that that's not the audience he's going for. He's not going for the hippies. He's not going for the counterculture. He's trying to get respectable people. When Prabhupada first gets to New York, he doesn't write letters to the, you know, the, what was it, the, the East Village, other like these counterculture, the Berkeley Barb. Who's he writing to? The Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation. He's writing to basically Republicans. I know it's a dirty word in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> he's writing to these big foundations and he's trying to get world leaders to get involved. Uh, so, um, but then that somehow that, that's not what happened because he arrived at a time when First of all, adults. There was a very popular saying back then, don't trust anyone over 30. And so no one over 30 was going to be interested or very little. If they were interested, if Indian, if respectable people in America were interested in Indian gurus, it was only Indian gurus that had the good sense not to give any real information about God. And just to speak in sort of like platitudes and, you know, peace, love, and God is love, which if you really think about it, what does it actually mean? And then, and, and Professor, and, and that uh, Dr. Mishra, Prabhupada spent time with Dr. Mishra, and Dr. Mishra was trying to coach Prabhupada, like, you're never going to get to first base, you know, doing it this way. You got to change your style, don't preach, don't, you know, God forbid, don't talk about regular principles. And so, and Prabhupada, of course, Prabhupada rejected that, but so, so ISKCON, as it developed with all these young former political radicals and hippies, that was definitely plan B. That was not plan A, that was plan B. Plan A was to do what Prabhupada what you do in India, you go to respectable people, you go to the leaders of the country, and you make your case. And Prabhupada was also operating within a, let's say, a worldview of, as Krishna says in the Gita, whatever the great people do. Uh, but America was democratic to a degree that people, you know, it was hard to imagine. 
And of course, the leaders weren't the leaders of great foundations and uh, uh, you know, the, the government leaders, those people that Prabhupada wrote to, assuming these are the leaders, now they were rock and roll stars or you know, just all kinds of people that took drugs, that were advocating free sex, that, you know, and those were the cultural leaders for the young people who basically culturally had nothing to do with the older people. Anyway, that's just a little bit of social history because to, to really understand the world that Prabhupada came to, Another example is Hare Krishna. Just to give you another example of how much ISKCON as it developed was Plan B. I, I wrote an essay, which, uh, you know, if you send me a note, I'll send it to you, on uh, really the first major deviation of, of, a, of, a, of an important devotee in ISKCON's history, which was. Kirtananda Swami in 1967. And Prabhupada was very concerned. It was actually a challenge to his leadership in ISKCON. It was a very serious thing. And um, he wrote a lot of letters almost every day. He was writing about it and, and warning the devotees and, and ordering them, don't listen to this, do that, and giving arguments about why this is not bona fide. And so what I did is I studied in a serious way all of Prabhupada's letters on this topic. And I wrote sort of like a, an essay giving the history of what actually happened. And what's interesting there is that um, the one thing Kirtananda did back then that Prabhupada said was not a problem was changing his dress. That's the one thing that Prabhupada said that's not really a big issue. You know, we're not so concerned with dress. But Prabhupada also said something else which is very interesting. He also told me that personally in Honolulu in 74, that dress is not so important. I mean, dress like a lady or a gentleman, that, that he wanted. Another thing is that he cared not to let his hair grow out. And I think he had a beard. And so Prabhupada made a very interesting comment. He said, actually, there's no rule against that. He said, there's no rule against that, but the reason I forbid it is because I didn't want the public to think that you were hippies. I mean, Prabhupada was kind of shocked because he came to America, he'd be doing programs and some hippie girl would just stand up and trance and literally just take all her clothes off. And, you know, that can ruin the whole kirtan. And so I had that experience myself. One time on a Sunday morning, I, I was the sort of the Sankirtan leader in Berkeley when I was, I was 21 years old. Was I 20? I don't know if I was even 21 yet. Maybe I was 20. And so I let out the Harinam Sankirtan party to the campus and uh, Sunday morning we were chanting and then uh, I guess I have to call her a hippie girl. I mean, she was really a, a hippie girl. And she came and she was kind of like, she's obviously on drugs and listening to the kirtan. And then she just started to move her hands in a way. I just knew she's gonna take her clothes off. I just knew she was gonna do that. And so I told all the brahmacharis, close your eyes. You know, and, <laughs> Those were the days in ISKCON where Prabhus were Prabhus and people obeyed orders. And so, and so, you know, I didn't really see it, but I just, I just saw her start to take her clothes off. So I said, everybody close your eyes. We just all closed our eyes. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, like that. 
And uh, actually, Prabhupada had a similar. Prabhupada said one time he was on a train when he was younger, he was a householder. And he was sitting next to a lady in some, I guess, private compartment, and she exposed herself. And Prabhupada said he just closed his eyes and chanted Hare Krishna. So that's what we did. But that's the way it was. And Prabhupada saw, from Prabhupada's point of view, coming from India, the nature of third world countries is that people don't throw away money. I spent many years working in Latin America, and the attitude toward money and the attitude toward privilege in third world countries is very, very different. People know the value of money because it's hard to come by and they don't throw it away. And if, you know, and, and if they have an opportunity to get some, they get it. And so um, when Prabhupada came to America and saw people from good families, because in India that, that, was, that was unheard of, it was unthinkable that in India, especially back then in the 60s and 70s, if a, if, a, if a young man or woman had the good fortune, born in a respectable family, had money to just reject the family fortune, reject all the privilege, reject the opportunities, and just you know, go sleep in the, in, in, in the park with the uh, rickshaw walls or something. I mean, it was, it was inconceivable. And so probably it really shocked Prabhupada to see these people from not only respectable families, but respectable American families, and of course, Prabhupada is seeing America through the eyes of someone from South Asia, from India. You know, it's the promised land. And so Prabhupada was really shocked by that. He was shocked by the degradation, by the filth, by the stench, by the sexual libertinism, by the, um, he was really shocked by it. And he was really concerned that his disciples not relapse into that. Now, I remember, in those days, whenever someone went into Prabhupada's room to see him, and uh, when they came out, everyone would say, what did Prabhupada say? And so we were at the um, Vrindavan Festival, Mayapur Vrindavan Festival one year, and uh, the, the senior devotees, sannyasis, they would hang out in Prabhupada's servant's room next to Prabhupada, so, you know, take advantage to see Prabhupada, whatever. So I remember one time, Hari Shori Prabhu came out of Prabhupada's room. He wrote those biographies of Prabhupada. He came out of Prabhupada's room, so we said, what did Prabhupada say? At that time, Hari Shori, he was GBC of Australasia, sort of the South Pacific area. And he, let, he, he had let his hair grow, maybe like two months. I mean, literally maybe two months. It's not like his hair was down to his knees. It's like, you know, two months of growth. And he said, when Prabhupada saw me, he said, oh, I see the hippie seeds are growing again. <laughs> so Prabhupada was really concerned that his disciples not relapse into a very degraded, promiscuous, filthy life, really, in many ways, and that the public not think we're hippies. Now, from our point of view, Obviously, we were not mature adults. Uh, we thought, well, that's great because, you know, hippie culture, counterculture, <laughs> radical politics, it's great that they identify with us. But Prabhupada had a very different view. Prabhupada had a very different vision of what he wanted for ISKCON, where he wanted ISKCON to go. There's a picture there, there in, in one of Satsarupa's biographies of Prabhupada. Prabhupada saw a picture of my godbrother Balavanta Prabhu, who ran for mayor of Atlanta. And so uh, he actually got some votes. I mean, he wasn't like a serious contender, but he, he did remarkably well. And he got enough, he got enough uh, signatures on, on his petition 
that he, by law, had to participate in all the debates, the public debates for, for mayor of Atlanta. So Prabhupada saw a picture of him with a coat, you know, sport coat and a tie and a shirt, and his hair was a little grown out. And Prabhupada said, this is what I always wanted. This is what I always wanted, that you be known as American Vaishnavas. So getting back to my thesis, um, because of all the historical circumstances, it was, you could say, inevitable. It was entirely predictable that the young people would join his con and mature people would not. In fact, once the young people joined, that was it, game over for the older people. I remember doing Harinam, Sankirtan in San Francisco. I mean, San Francisco, you know, Hey Dashbury in 1969, 70, and the young people kind of, I remember like all the respectable people, they would just walk by and they wouldn't even look at us. It was like, they just thought we were ruining the country. And so America was radically divided between generations and ISKCON was very much identified with the people that Prabhupada didn't want to be identified with. Because those were the people that were joining. But so if you look at the customs of ISKCON, some of the assumptions and the sort of the urban legends within the Hare Krishna movement, <laughs> I think we're invaded. <laughs> um, we were very immature. Obviously, I mean, we had a right to be. We were at the age where it's age appropriate to be immature. And so the reason I'm mentioning all this is because when the movement started to grow, some of that really serious immaturity affected ISKCON. And so therefore, the point I want to make is that in Prabhupada's Madhya Leela, sorry for this long talk, but I'm trying to explain something. And uh, please feed me after the lecture. So <laughs> there were three ways in which at the time when ISKCON was growing most quickly and most powerfully, I think in three different ways, ISKCON's own culture, uh, in some ways, what's a nice way to say it, was diminished. It actually got worse and not worse but but there were three and all to do with relationships and what I'm talking about is uh, three problems the relationship between Prabhupada and the devotees I mean Prabhupada didn't have a problem but we did the relationship between Prabhupada and his devotees the relationship between devotees and the relationship between devotees and the public and that's my thesis that the golden age was before this explosion. In terms of the relationship between devotees and the public, there was a time in the early days, late 60s, when we were very much part of the youth scene, as I already said. And even though older people might have thought we were a little strange, but you can see pictures of Prabhupada walking with his most senior disciples and they're wearing Western clothes. So there's a sense in which we really fit in. We really fit in. I was in Berkeley and we just fit in. We weren't strange, we weren't apart, and we didn't just fit in with yoga schools. We actually fit in with youth culture in general. And as far as relations between devotees, it was much more collegial in the sense that we were all friends. When I joined the Berkeley Temple, 
There were about 10 men and 10, 10 women. It was just like brothers and sisters. There was no sense whatsoever of the women being less than the men. And uh, women were not at all perceived as being somehow dangerous for men practicing spiritual life. It was just like brothers and sisters. We were all friends. And, and there was chastity. In that temple, I was there for half a year. No one fell down. No one broke any regular principles. But we were all just friends. And in terms of the relationship with Prabhupada, um, and this is the last point I'll make. Um, I think there's a sense in which there was an, an inevitable tendency to not only understand that Prabhupada is a pure devotee that came, that Krishna sent to us, but to go beyond that and, 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 and to mythologize in certain ways, in certain ways that Prabhupada himself rejected and didn't like. You know, Prabhupada once said that if the guru asks for water, don't bring milk. So, and so we can theologically bring milk when Prabhupada asks for theological water. So I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, Prabhupada made it very clear, although you don't always hear about this in classes, it's not a topic which is, it's just not a big topic, but it's there. Prabhupada said it hundreds of times. It's just hasn't been remembered. Prabhupada made a very clear distinction between those areas in which a guru, including myself, my card, I will beat any confirmed diksha rate. You bring it in. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Um, Prabhupada made it very clear, and he said this hundreds of times, and it's in the Veda base that when the guru is quoting from Shastra, the guru speaks infallibly. So if I tell you Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, surrender to me, that's, that's the absolute truth, that we should surrender to Krishna. But if I give you my opinion on contemporary political events, or what's going to happen in the Middle East, or you know, what you should, whether or not you should invest in the stock market right now, or, you know, what the best thing to do for your cold is, or anything like that, or even you could say vocational counseling, I'm not speaking infallibly. Now, it may turn out that I'm kind of a, you know, uh, I may be smart or maybe not or maybe wise, so I may give you the right advice, but it's, it's not a priori, it's not necessarily true simply because I'm a guru and I said it if it's not something from Shastra. And that, and Prabhupada very strongly made this distinction, a distinction which to some extent has been lost. And so in the early days of the movement, if you read those great books like Mukunda Goswami or Guru, Guru Das, uh, really these wonderful books, biographies of Prabhupada, what you find is that Prabhupada very happily took the role of the spiritual master. And he enlightened his disciples. But as far as practical preaching, he pretty much trusted them to figure that out. Of course, he set boundaries like, you know, if you're going too far, then he'd have to rein them in. But in general, he simply set, he simply set boundaries. What happened is, if you, and I know we're going over time, so, but, 
I think it, I think it's really important to have a rational understanding of the movement we belong to. So, if you study the sociology of religion, the way I put it is, our philosophy is not that we're beyond the laws of nature. The laws of nature are the laws of God, Krishna says. So, what the, what the Nectar Devotion says, what Rupa Goswami and Prabhupada teach is that if you surrender to Krishna, you are beyond your own karma. You become freed from your karma. To be freed from your karma does not mean you're beyond the laws of nature. So, for example, in the early days, many devotees thought that we don't have to follow the rules of nutrition because we're eating prasadam, we're eating maprasadam, and, and therefore, I think that many Prabhupada disciples left this world prematurely because we don't need exercise and we don't need to eat healthy food because, you know, we're serving Krishna. Or back, this is, of course, decades ago, but parents not giving enough attention to their children because, you know, I'm, I'm selling Prabhupada's books. And then, you know, we saw the consequences. So in the same way, the way I put it, it, it you know, I always say this, that, that if, if a devotee, a karmi, a jnani, yogi all fall off a building, they will all fall exactly at the same speed, according to the laws of physics. So we actually are subject to the laws of nature. Prabhupada even said that. He said, if you try to imitate these great souls like Raghunath Das Goswami, who didn't, you know, hardly ate anything, he said, if you imitate that, you'll fall down, you'll, you know, you'll die. So according to the laws of nature, when you have a great charismatic leader like Prabhupada, and this comes from the Greek word charisma, which means a, uh, it's really very much like what we call Shakti Avesh, someone who's endowed with a special divine gift. That's what the original word charisma meant, like this gift, this divine gift. And so a charismatic leader is a leader who's perceived by the followers to have a special spiritual gift, a special connection to God. And that is certainly Prabhupada. So what happens is, during the time that a great charismatic leader, whether it's Prabhupada or Jesus or Buddha or, or Krishna, when you have a, or Lord Chaitanya, when you have a great charismatic leader, that person's personal presence makes everything work. That person's personal word is authority. When Prabhupada was here, we talked about Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra, but basically whatever Prabhupada said, that's the law. And that, that's the charismatic stage in the development of a new religious or spiritual movement. When that great leader passes on, inevitably, well, with Krishna it's not inevitable, but, but when the great leader passes on, the, the, the followers feel bereft because that person was the authority. Everything revolved around the authority of that person. And so what happens then, and you see this in, in every new religion in history, this is just the laws of nature. So what happens at that point is that the followers, they do, they do two things if they're going to survive. One thing they do is they have to take that power of their leader and somehow channel it into rational administrative structures. So that, for example, we respect the GBC or we respect... A sannyasi, let's say, assuming they're doing their job well, or, or, or we follow a temple president because that's what Prabhupada wanted. So Prabhupada's authority, he's no longer there in the same way to just, you write him a letter, you ask him, do you want it this way or that way? So therefore, that authority has to be successfully channeled into a structure which allows the movement to survive. Because if devotees don't believe that Prabhupada wanted us to follow his con leaders, 
ISKCON would just collapse very quickly. And so that's called the routinization of charisma or, or the, you know, in other words, taking that charismatic power of the leader and channeling it into a sustainable structure, which ISKCON has successfully done. And so ISKCON passed a gigantic test of history by being able to survive this very critical and very uh, dangerous stage of having to rationally channel that the charisma of the leader into a structure. Something else happens though, which is not, I think in every way positive. And I think it, it happened, well, hi Krishna. Those are the perks of me. You may give up your family, but you get the fire first. So, and you get first in line for eating, right? That's a big thing, especially on a fast day. Anyway, so there is a tendency. You see this, I mean, a spectacular example of this is the Jesus movement, and that is the mythologizing of the leader. If you look at what Jesus actually said and what later churches said about him, it's like, wow. I mean, you, you wouldn't know it's the same person. You would, hardly you would hardly know it's the same person. The same thing, I mean, Jesus, Jesus got a powerful upgrade. He became God, which has nothing to do with the historical Jesus. But anyway, so look at Buddha. The first formal, the, the actual historical Buddha, to the extent that we know about him, number one, after refused to talk about metaphysics, like what's the next life, is there a soul? He never said there's no soul. If you look at the second sermon of the Buddha, which is officially the sermon on the non-existence of the soul. He never says there's no soul. Buddha never denied the soul, never denied God. But his followers just transformed him into this, you know, the, the Jataka stories about his past lives and Buddha heaven and paradise and this and that. And, you know, that's so, so in Buddhism and Christianity, there was a process of transforming the leader into something amazing, which has very little to do with what the leader actually said. And if you look at Iska, Prabhupada, you take Prabhupada, who when he when the devotees actually knew him, when he knew the devotees, he was happy for them to figure out practical strategy. For example, why did Prabhupada go to the Lower East Side and open up you know, the massless gift shops? Because someone told him that's a good place to be. Why did Prabhupada open a center in San Francisco? Because his disciples told him we need to be there. If you read Mukunda Goswami's book, you see Prabhupada as a pure devotee, spiritually holding everything together and depending on his disciples to figure out practical preaching strategies, including how we dress, including you know, how we present ourselves and so on and so forth. And of course, Prabhupada kept the boundaries. If someone went too far, he'd, you know, red, red flag, you know, that's too far. But within reasonable boundaries, Prabhupada, that's what the role Prabhupada wanted. He kept begging us to let him just do that. He kept saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to manage. Get me out of this manage, management. Let me just write my books. So what I guess my message here to, to, to sort of wrap this up is that I believe this is just my view, 
that to, because we really need another Hare Krishna explosion. Oh, are you, you going to go all around right now again? No, I don't. Oh. Thank you. That, um, I, Prabhupada somehow trusted me. Prabhupada spent, you know, he, he, most of the time when I was with Prabhupada, I didn't just ask him questions, were just things he wanted to tell me about. And I traveled, I mean, I mean if, if you just know Prabhupada, you, you'd know that right now in Prabhupada's mind, what we need to do urgently, desperately, is rebuild our Western mission. That is what we need to do. I mean, anyone that knows Prabhupada knows that. And we need, under Prabhupada's authority and strictly following Prabhupada's basic principles, we need the freedom and the flexibility and the creativity and the agility to make this movement work for Western people. Prabhupada says in his purport uh, to the Bhagavatam 4, 854, what works in India will not work in the West. It doesn't mean we should, now, you could say, okay, this is, you know, this could be dangerous. What are we going to change? Prabhupada makes a distinction. Actually, Rupa Goswami makes a distinction in chapter six of the Bhakti Samrata Sindhu between two basic categories. And if we fail to grasp that these are different categories, we are crippling ourselves and making it very difficult for us to rebuild this movement. Those two categories are basic principles that you can't change. You absolutely can't change them. And details that you have to change. Because as I say, whether you're a very large, woolly mammoth or, or a spiritual movement, if you don't adapt, you'll go extinct. So Rupa Goswami gives a list of the basic principles and all kinds of external things. External things like dress, cuisine, architecture, music style. They're not on the list. Nothing that we would call an ethnic characteristic is in that list of basic principles. And so if we're going to be spiritual scientists, we really need to start paying attention to these things. Also, um, I was going to say that uh, to summarize and make it very simple for you, there are three things that we can't change because Prabhupada often said, don't change anything. And Prabhupada often said, adjust everything. This is called a paradox. A paradox is an apparent contradiction which forces you to think deeply to resolve it and to find the ultimate coherence. So there are three things that basically Prabhupada said we cannot change. They are our philosophy, which is sometimes called Siddhanta, our basic philosophy, we can't change. Number two, our basic spiritual practice, sadhana bhakti. Prabhupada gave us a practice. It involves chanting japa, it involves a morning program, and you know, our spiritual practice. We can't change that. We can't change our spiritual practice. The third thing that Prabhupada absolutely did not want us to change was our institutional framework. Prabhupada created ISKCON. He asked us to work within ISKCON. And so if, if we do those three things, we preach, Faithfully, our philosophy coming down from Guru Sadhu and Shastra, if we practice according to Prabhupada's sadhana, and if we are faithful to Prabhupada's ISKCON, 
what's the problem? And having done that, we actually have the freedom. We have, Prabhupada gave us the freedom, in fact, gave us the duty to make whatever external adjustments are necessary to make this movement work in the Western world. Prabhupada's entire global strategy for saving this planet depends on making his movement work in the Western countries, especially America. And if we don't get this movement to really grow powerfully among Western people in this country, Prabhupada's whole global strategy basically collapses. It, it, of course, it'll work in India, it's going really well, which is wonderful. But Prabhupada put, some people, for example, I started Krishna West, I promise I won't go on a rant here about Krishna West. But some people have actually criticized that, you know, as, as if it's, I, it's like offensive to juxtapose the holiest word Krishna with such a vulgar, profane word like West. I would say two things. Number one, Prabhupada started it. Prabhupada wrote his own Pranam Mantra, Namaste Saraswati, because there was no one else to do it. And he put the word West in there. He said, Paschatya Deshatarine. Prabhupada saw himself as a savior of the Western countries. And he said, Western. That's how he defines himself, characterizes himself in his own Pranam Mantra. And the second thing I want to say, which I'm sure you all, you all know anyway, is that when Prabhupada instructed us, he said on Sankirtan, you have to, you have to flatter people. Like, like he even said, you know, like you go out to sell books, tell people, oh, sir, or ma madam, you know, you're a very respectable person, therefore please consider this book. So we, you cannot simultaneously denigrate, you cannot simultaneously insult and offend and attract people. You can, but you're gonna get the wrong people. You can get people with very serious emotional issues. But if we want to attract respectable, intelligent people, the kind Prabhupada always wanted to attract, we cannot simultaneously insult and offend them and attract them. And so for the Hare Krishna movement to just stigmatize the Western world as you know barbarian and disgusting and and all that i mean in every country whether it's america or india there's all you know india is one of the world's leading exporters of of, of of beef and it probably is perhaps the leading country in in i mean the indian government the central government of india did a, a, a commissioned a study of child abuse in india and found it was 50 percent And yet India is the land of Krishna. And India, you could say, has the most pious people in the world. And our, and our, our mission in India is, is one of the most important missions in ISKCON. So the fact that in India there are some really nasty things going on uh, doesn't change the fact that it's an, you know, it's an extremely important country and that it's the land of Krishna. In the same way, there are obviously quite a number of disgusting things going on in this country. We even now have the rare privilege to have the narcissist in chief in the White House. <laughs> but still, there's a lot of wonderful things. Prabhupada said that when Prabhupada, if you, if you listen to Prabhupada's lectures in 1966 in New York, 
he would often say, there are so many great things, wonderful things in this country, America. He said, just put the, the one of Krishna in front of all these zeros. If you think that all those zeros are zero, you don't understand your basic math. Because for example, if you have the number 1,000, the first zero to the right of the one is a placeholder. It actually stands for 900. Because if you remove one zero from a thousand, you get a hundred. So the, the zero actually has a value of 900. The next zero you add is 9,000. Anyway, obviously you can do the math. The next zero, 90,000, 900,000, 9 million, on up to septillions and beyond. So, when Prabhupada said there are many zeros in this country without Krishna, without Krishna is zero, but you put the one, becomes a big number, that means Prabhupada saw extraordinary value in so many things in this country. There are many things in this country we should admire and praise, and we should tell people it's a great country, but you need to add Krishna. That's the message. Not that everything Western is bad and everything Indian is good, and not that everything Indian is bad, obviously. So Prabhupada said, it's not the question of East and West. This is Prabhupada speaking. I'll send you my paper if you want to read it. There's a huge Prabhupada that's been forgotten. There's all kinds of statements Prabhupada made that have been forgotten. They're not quoted. They're not given in classes. Prabhupada said, it is not the question of East and West. And so what I'm dedicating my life to, because I can't, imagine how I would face Prabhupada when I leave this world if I didn't do this. It's just doing everything in my power to try to help do my part to rebuild his Western mission. And that requires a lot of intelligence. It requires a lot of courage. It requires, we really have to think about these things. And ISKCON needs another golden age. ISKCON, there has to be another Hare Krishna explosion. The world depends upon it. And that was Prabhupada's dream. Prabhupada gave his life for this. And we can't simply pretend that, I don't see the problem. What's the problem? You know, it's like uh, to quote uh, from the Beatles, Hey Jude, when you let it get, in, get under your skin, then you begin to make it better. Some of you know that song. Anyway, it's a famous Western song. So uh, this, if, any, if any movement's going to save the world, it's this movement. If any movement has a chance to actually save this miserable planet, it's Prabhupada's movement. And again, following Prabhupada's teachings, practicing bhakti yoga the way he taught it, being loyal to his movement. Once we do that, we need to really be intelligent and figure this out. We need to figure this out for Prabhupada. Last story, I promise I'm going to end. Giri Raswami, you all know Giri Raswami? Yay, Giri Raswami. Actually, we were like really close friends since 1970. We were brahmacharis together, we were buddies. Prabhupada, we both joined the movement. We both saw Prabhupada during Prabhupada's same tour. In 1969, early 69, just about, uh, my God, 31, 48 years ago. I was obviously one year old when I joined the movement. I actually crawled into the temple because <laughs> I'm, I'm 49 now. But anyway, in uh, around February of 1969, Prabhupada made a college preaching tour in America. I was at Berkeley. 
And Giri Raj was at Brandeis University, a very good school just outside Boston. And we both attended Prabhupada's lectures on that same tour. And then we met in 1970 in Boston when Prabhupada sent me there. And uh, anyway, so Giri Raj uh, told me a story many times that um, just before Prabhupada left this world, just before Prabhupada left this world, Giri Raj was in Vrindavan to, to be with Prabhupada. And in the middle of the night, Prabhupada's servant came and woke him up, woke up Giri Raj in the middle of the night and said, Prabhupada wants to see you. So of course he was immediately jumped up and he ran to Prabhupada's room. And the way he described it, he sat there in Prabhupada's room. It was the middle of the night, it was dark. There was just one candle there near Prabhupada. And he sat there waiting. What is it? And finally Prabhupada called him up. And at that point, it was so near the end of Prabhupada's pastimes in this world that his, his body was so weak that Giriraj had to put his ear next to Prabhupada's lips to hear what he was saying. And Prabhupada said to him, when I leave this world, will my movement go on? And the way Giriraj describes it, he kind of gave the standard company answer. It's like when you work for a company, if, if, if the client asks this, then you say that. So, so he, Giriraj said, that yes, Prabhupada, the movement will go on if we chant Hare Krishna and follow the rules. And Prabhupada indicated that's not enough. And then Prabhupada said to Giriraj, there must be intelligence. There must be intelligence and organization. So the idea that it will happen automatically if we just follow the rules, guess again. The idea that purity is enough if we're just pure, nope. We have a very powerful proof that just purity by itself won't automatically spread this movement. What's the example? Prabhupada in India before he came to the West. As I always say, Prabhupada did not become a pure devotee on the boat. Prabhupada was a pure devotee long before he left India. And yet, it didn't work. He was trying so many things because that's, Prabhupada was so dynamic, he was so relentless, that he was determined. He, he went to Jansi and started the League of Devotees. And it just, it didn't work out. He came back to Delhi. He, uh, he, he started praying like a sheep. He called back to Godhead. And, and he literally almost killed himself giving this out. He had, you know, had a, a sunstroke, fainted in Delhi. You know, the heat in Delhi is just like. So he, you know, he was giving out and he just saw it's not happening. I mean, obviously, both in Jhansi and in New Delhi or Delhi, uh, there were interested people. There were, you know, he could do little programs. Something, something was happening. But Prabhupada had a different vision. He wanted to save the planet. He could just see it's not really going there. So then he wrote the Bhagavatam. Someone actually told him, why don't you write books? Not just these, you know, these little newspapers. Why don't you do a book? So he went to Vrindavan and he did the, the Bhagavatam, which is the foundation of our movement. And he didn't immediately come to the West after the Bhagavatam because 
he, for example, he had his picture taken with that, that, that uh, prime minister, Shastri, who was killed by the Russians. Anyway, he had his picture taken by the, with the prime minister. So obviously in India, especially back then, Prabhupada was clearly a sadhu. You know, everything about him said that he was a saintly person and he could go anywhere in India and people would listen and they would appreciate him, they would feed him, they would offer him a place to stay, they'd probably buy his book. So it's not that no one was interested, but Prabhupada saw it's not leading to a movement. It's not really leading to, I could maybe do like a little church, but it's not leading to a powerful movement. And so he, again, the letters he wrote at the time, it's clear what his vision was. He wants to save the world. He wants to, he wants to fulfill Lord Chaitanya's prophecy. He wants to change human history. So he came to the West. So I, I think it would be tragic if we forget the real mood of Prabhupada, which is to be relentless, to never be satisfied until the movement truly is exploding. I mean, not in the negative sense of the word, but until the movement is really booming and we're, we're, we're affecting the world. I mean, Prabhupada was so, he used to laugh about this. He was so happy about it that, that back around the mid seventies, the movement was growing so powerfully that Someone in Congress, I'm sure it was Republican, but someone stood up in the U.S. Congress in Washington and said that if we don't stop these Hare Krishnas in 10 years, they're going to take over the world. Prabhupada loved it. <laughs> and so that's Prabhupada, who is relentless, who is unstoppable, who will try this, try again, within basic principles, who will just try anything to get this movement going, who is never satisfied unless he sees that we're really growing, we're becoming an, a, a, a real spiritual power in, Western, in the Western world. So that's Prabhupada. That's the real Prabhupada. And um, you're all very sincere. You're all intelligent. You are all Vaishnavas. And, and you are the hope. I mean, I mean we are. I mean, Prabhupada is placing his hope in us, so I, I, that's my humble request. I, well, actually, I'm not really humble. I mean, even I don't believe that if I say I'm speaking humbly. <laughs> Can't even convince myself about that one, but. What would they, what do they say, you know, that saying, if I, actually, if I was just a little more humble, I'd be perfect. So, anyway, my, my request to all of you is that, um, we really need, you're all, in, I mean, you're intelligent people. You're intelligent, educated people. And, and many of you here have been successful in this country. So obviously you know how to work the system. So therefore what we need to do is find the way to make this movement powerfully attractive to Western people. Prabhupada emphasizes over and over and over. So, I mean, I don't want you to panic and think you're never going to eat today. So I'll stop here. So thank you all very much. Hare Krishna. Yeah, yeah. If you have questions, I don't want to delay the program any more than I already have. Wow. So. 
So, uh, you know, when we serve out prasadam, which will also put you in a better mood, so you probably ask a more favorable question. <laughs> But, controversial question it's um <laughs> yes i mean Prabhupada said the temples exist for preaching and the puja is just to encourage the preachers that's what Prabhupada said so i mean we're in a complex situation i don't want to blame anyone i don't want to criticize anyone and, but it is a fact that um as far as measuring success Prabhupada made it very simple he said he said success means increasing the family members and I used to go into Prabhupada's room and, and I remember walking to Prabhupada's room and he was, you know, really happy, jovial somehow because I was saying him good results. And I remember walking into Prabhupada's room and he just said, so how many new devotees, how many temples, how many books? I mean, on the one hand, you can say we can't quantify spiritual success, but on the other hand, oh yes, you can. Because, I mean, obviously we don't want a big movement and everyone's a hypocrite and, and, you know, not really spiritual. Obviously we don't want that. But assuming that we maintain our spiritual quality, Prabhupada was absolutely all about increasing. Prabhupada once said it was famous, I remember back in the early 70s. He said, every time a new temple opens, I feel Vaikuntha bliss. Prabhupada took the growth of our movement in real measurable terms. Prabhupada took the growth of our movement as a sign that we were bona fide. I mean, how many hundreds of times did Prabhupada say that, you know, to people that, you know, our movement is bona fide, we're opening so many centers and we're doing this and people are, just, I mean, Prabhupada constantly gave that success as evidence that this movement had real spiritual power, that we were really doing it right. That was one of his main arguments. It cuts both ways. I mean, can we say that if we're not really growing in, among the Western people, is that a sign that we're, that we're doing something wrong? Again, I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not criticizing. I think, you know, all the devotees, everyone here is very sincere and, and you know, intelligent and really wants to serve Prabhupada. But the point is, uh, if we just have an international society for self-congratulation and, and just sort of, you know, it's just all about feeling good about ourselves and we put out magazines in which if you read some of the magazines like ISKCON 50, I mean, you swear to God that we're winning. That, you know, probably, you know, within a few years, we'll probably, it'll be a Krishna conscious nation. So I think that we, as you know, I mean, many of you work for, you know, important corporations and so on and so forth. And, and you know that it's a regular part of successful corporate culture in the modern world to see what you're doing wrong and what do we need to do better, isn't it? I mean, that's just the way successful corporations function nowadays. You know that you've worked for very important corporations and, and universities. And it's not something we do all the time. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's not like that was probably, it's not like the whole, and I'm not even talking about Portland now or, or Hillsborough. I'm, I'm just making a general commentary. It's not that it, it's a very, let, let's say it's a, uh, an important part of ISCON culture in general that we're really monitoring our success and we're constantly, you know, not in a, not in a, a negative pessimistic way, but criticizing ourselves. What can we do better? What is working? What is working among Western people? What's not working? What can we adjust? What did Prabhupada say? And it, 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 we're not a corporation that's constantly, you know, meeting and critiquing and discussing and looking at the, you know, the bottom line and what's happening. And we're, we're sort of aggressive and we're ambitious and we're really competing. That just doesn't sound like any Eastern Center I've been to lately. But that's Prabhupada. That's Prabhupada. So you're all sincere. You're Vaishnavas. You love Krishna. My, what I'm trying to say to you and everybody's listening in other countries is that other cities is that uh, there's no one to blame. No one's at fault. It's simply a question that at this point in history, we really need to be there for Prabhupada and 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 find a way. We have to find a way. To make this movement powerful in Western countries. So, uh, any other questions? Please approach me as I'm overeating. And um, <laughs> thank you all very much. Hare Krishna. So, thank you all who were listening. Um, sorry, there's no time actually for questions online, but. Would we like to do like. Hare Krishna.